Hey, really great to see you guys here tonight. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Tonight we are talking about some really uh, weighty, significant kinds of topics. We're talking about church and culture then and now. The idea is to look back at the ancient church, the first century church and the church of the first few centuries to, to really navigate some complex 21st century kinds of issues. But I want to tell you before we sort of dive into that, um, kind of where some of this material got developed. About a year ago, um, I had a Sunday where I wasn't preaching. And so I determined what I want to do is I want to reach out to one of the Bible communities. Um, and, and so I reached out to our journey class. The journey class is made up of folks that are, uh, most of them probably 65 and older, kind of our, our seasoned saints of the church. And so I reached out to the leadership of the journey class and just said, hey, I'd love to come and be with you on this Sunday where I'm not preaching. I'd love to come and just show up and just let you guys know how much I love you, how much I value you, how much I see you, and what an integral part of our church you are. They sent me back a list of about 30 questions that covered everything from the definition of marriage to critical race theory to, um, I mean, issues of sexuality and politics. And I mean, I, 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 um, I, well, this, this was me when I saw the questions, right? <laughs> I mean, I saw this list of questions. I thought we were coming in because it was just have a good time. And it was like, uh-oh, these folks have some questions. And, and the reality is, is that I kind of understand why some of those questions were there. That, uh, that when we talk about issues on a Sunday morning, that, that we end up addressing subjects that could go a whole lot deeper, but we can only hit so much in the midst of a 30-minute sermon on a Sunday morning that winds up leaving uh, significant kinds of questions. Sometimes, frankly, people hearing things that maybe I'm not saying. And, uh, and so it, it leaves a sense of like, wait, where, where's Barry coming from? Where's Irving Bible Church coming from on some of these big cultural issues? And I got to tell you, there have been over the course, especially the last couple of years, folks that I think, not part of that class per se, but just part of the church that, that it felt like, um, well, I remember one particular email I got of a, a family that was saying they were leaving the church because of Barry's liberal agenda. And that just so deeply grieves me as a pastor. Because my desire is not to promote any kind of liberal agenda. My, my desire is to promote the biblical agenda. My, my desire is to see us truly formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. But we are in the midst of some significant kind of cultural issues that require us to, to navigate them very, very carefully. And I truly do believe um, that, uh, that one of the best ways for us to think about these issues that we're navigating is actually to look back at the early church. So I want to share with you four distinctives of early Christianity. And before I actually show you what those distinctives are, I want to tell you just personally where some of this was born for me. A, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity. Kim and I um, spent uh, 19 days in Spain on a mission trip. And then we tagged on to the end of this mission trip 10 days where we were going to be in Italy. Now, the only problem was that just before we got on a plane, like a few days before we got on the plane for a month in Europe, we found out that Kim was pregnant with our first child. And we sort of freaked out a little bit, like, do we go? Do we stay? But at that point, she was feeling fine. Her mother had seven children and never had a day of morning sickness through any of her pregnancies. So we thought, you know what? It's going to be fine. Let's do it. We got about halfway over the Atlantic Ocean. And she started feeling so sick. She, poor thing, she was just so nauseated the whole time. She felt awful. And for the whole 
29 days that we spent in Europe, most of the time, she, it wasn't morning sickness, it was morning, noon, and night sickness. She had a pair of sandals that she had to throw away after that trip just because of how much time she spent bent over looking down at her feet while she was just feeling uh, nauseated. And so uh, it was a miserable experience for her, but her, the best day for her on the whole trip was our first day in Rome. And so we just had this wonderful, romantic day traveling all over the city of Rome, seeing all the big sights. Well, when we got back to the hotel that night, she said, tomorrow, I just want to sleep. So you leave, go do whatever you want on your own, but I'm staying here in the room in the dark, and I'm sleeping all day long. And I said, okay. And so that next day, I got on a bus on my own, and I went out. This bus took me out outside the ancient city walls along the road, the Via Appia, an ancient road, and dropped me off at a place called the Catacombs of Domatilla. And... I went inside this building, bought my ticket, and descended down this little set of stone stairs into this series. It's about 11 miles of underground tunnels, these tunnels that were dug out in um, ancient Rome. And these were the burying places of the ancient Christians. And as you walk along these dark tunnels, on your right and on your left are dug out in the walls different levels of where they would lay a body. And it was there in the catacombs that early Christians would gather for worship because in the midst of persecution, this was where they were safe. And so they would gather there to worship surrounded by the body of their fallen loved ones, some of them who had, martyred, who had been martyred for their faith. And I remember standing there in that space thinking, I'm not sure I really get what discipleship is all about, right? This level of commitment this level of dedication um, that, that oftentimes for me, my, my faith was sort of an accessory to the rest of my life. And for them, this was everything. But what happened is because of these people who were, who were so dedicated to following the way of Jesus for the sake of the world, they revolutionized the ancient Roman Empire. That within just a few centuries... The, the church went from being this underground, illegal, persecuted cult to being the dominant religious force in the Western world in just a few centuries. This remarkable, rapid expansion of Christianity that transformed the ancient world. And when we ask a question, how, how does that happen? Of course, we want to offer something of a theological answer. The Holy Spirit is moving mightily among the early church, and yet there's also more to the story than that. Because we can look back and see some key distinctives of the way they lived, the way they organized their lives together, the ethics of the early church that were part of the way that the ancient world took notice and part of the way that the ancient world was transformed. And, and I want to begin tonight and then unpack for you these four distinctives of early Christianity. And here they are. Number one, a countercultural sexual ethic. Number two, a holistic commitment to the sanctity of life. Number three, a community of ethnic reconciliation. And number four, a sacrificial concern for the poor and the marginalized. Now, I want you to look at that list and think about that list with me for a second. And then think about where we find ourselves in 21st century North America and the way in which our imaginations are so deeply shaped by a kind of partisan polarity that our imaginations, the way we see the world, 
is so deeply shaped by this left-right, liberal-conservative kind of divide that we're shaped in such a way that we see everything, we hear everything, we filter everything through this kind of left-right polarity. Does that make sense? Does that resonate, right? That, we, that, that happens the way in which we're shaped in so many ways. You have uh, different forms of media that are making a whole lot of money that are running to one end or the other, appealing to people with anger and fear because that's what gets clicks. That's what sells ad space. Now, when you look at this list with me, And you think about it in terms of our contemporary partisan polarity, what do you notice? The first two of these issues sound a lot like the domain of the contemporary political right. And the second two of these issues tend to sound a lot like the domain of the political left. Not exclusively, but primarily. These first two issues, countercultural, sexual ethic, and a holistic commitment to the sanctity of life, sound like issues from the right. Issues of race and ethnicity, issues of concern for poor and marginalized, tend to sound more like issues of the left. But here's the thing. The early church did not have their imagination shaped by that kind of partisan polarity. And the early church held these four things together without tension, right? That, that, that these things, for them, all belonged together in following the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. And so what happens is that, especially I think in this highly politically charged environment, when I as a pastor, when we as a church start talking about things like a community of ethnic reconciliation and a sacrificial concern for the poor and the marginalized, what do people hear? They hear Barry's liberal agenda. And yet, friends, I... (laughs) I don't have a liberal agenda. I have a deep desire for us to be formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. And I think that looks a lot like what we see in early Christianity. And the early Christians changed the world. And so I want to walk with you through each of these and just spend a few minutes talking about each one of them. So, first of all, a countercultural sexual ethic. The early church, I think it's sometimes hard for us to to think of it, the early church is born into um, sexual chaos, right? The ancient Roman Empire is just sexually a mess all over the place. Basically, anything goes was kind of the sexual ethic of the Roman Empire. Um, There's one ancient philosopher, a near contemporary, the Apostle Paul, who, who writes about women and he says, we have mistresses for our pleasure prostitutes for our daily needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children and manage our household. Does that sound appealing? To, no, I mean, that, that's awful, right? But that is the, the sort of pervasive view of women in the ancient world. Um, men were free, married men were free to have sex with pretty much whoever they wanted to. And it didn't always have to be women. I mean, th- 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 what happened is the church is born into a world that is characterized by sexual chaos, The church at Corinth, this is one of the places where Paul offers the most direct teaching about sexuality in the New Testament to the church in Corinth. Why? Because Corinth was wild. I mean, to put it in contemporary, it's what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? It's very much the same kind of scene. And in ancient Corinth, where these ships would come into this port city, there was on the outside of the city, on on a hill, a a temple to a, a Roman goddess, a Greek goddess. And 
One ancient writer suggests that that temple employed a thousand temple prostitutes. Now, that may be hyperbole, and yet even the hyperbole points to something. And so Paul's writing to this first century church in the midst of that crazy world, writing to people who have converted to Christianity, who may prior to their conversion to Christianity spend a lot of time walking up and down the hill. The church is born into a world of sexual chaos. And can I just suggest to you that I think the church in North America in the 21st century is trying to live in the midst of a culture of sexual chaos. Um, We just find ourselves in a time where there's all kinds of shifting attitudes and perceptions and understandings of sexuality. And it seems in many respects that consent has become the only constraint Right? That, con- that in our contemporary world, consent has become the only constraint. And yet, for early Christians, they believe that following the way of Jesus uh, required some constraint of their sexuality, their sexual urges. And so the ethic of early Christianity when it came to sexuality was the teaching that marriage was one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life. There was this recognition that that sex is a powerful force to unite a man and a woman together. And that that powerful force needed something more powerful than itself, something stronger than itself to contain it. And that which it's meant to be contained within is the context of covenant, intimacy, and safety together in the context of the marriage covenant. God, God is not a prude. Right? Our, our sexuality is God's idea. Right? The, the pleasure that comes with sexual expression, God thought that up. God is not a prude, but God recognizes that our sexuality needs constraint. And that the constraint that God puts on that is the context of the covenant of marriage. And so the ethic is one man and woman in the context of marriage for life. Um, and apart from that, the call to those who are not in the covenant of marriage to live and celibacy. Part of the challenge for the church in the 21st century is that we have not constructed forms of community that really um, help um, single people to flourish in lives of celibacy, a place of deep connection, familial kinds of bonds. Um, This is one of the challenges we face. And yet it's important, I think, for us to recognize that, um, that the early church held to this what was for the ancient world, restrictive kind of sexual ethic. And they didn't transform the culture by persuading the culture that their sexual ethic was right. They transformed the culture by living it faithfully. And so I think what happens sometimes is that Christians in the 21st century world, in the midst of a world of sexual chaos, want to take bold stands and want to right, want to speak truth, and yet... The challenge for us, I think, is actually to live faithfully within God's calling on our lives. And so when I um, reached out to, connected with the folks in the journey class, some of the questions that they asked me were around this, uh, around this question of um, IBC's position on uh, marriage. And so I said to them, we, we teach a, a traditional Christian sexual ethic, what the church has taught down through the centuries. Um, mar- the sex is intended to be expressed in the context of uh, the covenant marriage between a man and a woman. It's a countercultural 
sexual ethic, but it's what I believe that we are called to. Um, but that then has uh, further questions with regard particularly to dealing with issues of people who experience same-sex attraction, people who identify as gay. And how do we think about navigate that as a church? And one of the things that we've talked about for a long time in leadership at IBC is that there is a distinction to be made between our biblical position and our posture toward people. And our biblical position is a traditional Christian biblical position. But our posture toward people is always one of compassion. And that has not always been the posture of the church. When the early writers of the New Testament describe the emotional disposition of Jesus, the most frequently used word to describe Jesus' emotional life is that he was filled with compassion. And so we lead not so much with theology as with embrace. We want to create a a community of hospitality and compassion, a place where people can belong and feel a sense of in which they are loved. That is not a compromise of biblical conviction, but the recognition that proximity does not equal permission, right? And Jesus is the ultimate example of that, that proximity doesn't equal permission, that we lead with um, a posture of um, of compassion. Christopher Wright is a Catholic writer, actually, that writes a lot about sexuality. He has a wonderful little book called The Theology of the Body for Beginners. And I think this is such an important word for us. He says, ponder this for a moment. If the body and sex are meant to proclaim our union with God, and he's done a lot of work to this point in the book to, to argue that point. If the body and sex are meant to proclaim our union with God, and if there's an enemy who wants to separate us from God, who do you think he's going to go... What do you think he's going to attack? And then this is the the punchline. If we want to know what is most sacred in the world, all we need to do is look for what is most violently profaned. And I think if we think about human sexuality, we think about the chaos in which our world finds itself, and we think about even our own experiences of sexual brokenness, that we can recognize the truth. That God has an enemy who seeks to undermine his good intention at every turn. And if we want to know what is most sacred in the world, we need only look for that which is most violently profaned. But in the midst of a world that was filled with all kind of sexual chaos, the early church had a countercultural sexual ethic. And they didn't see, set out to try to persuade the world that theirs was true. They, saw, they set out to try to live it faithfully. A countercultural sexual ethic. Second, a holistic commitment to the sanctity of life, a holistic commitment to the sanctity of life. That word holistic is very important. It points to the the whole of life because sometimes when we hear this little phrase, sanctity of life, we hear it today again through the the filter of contemporary, that that, uh, partisan polarity left and right, and we hear sanctity of life and we think abortion. We think um, uh, about an unborn child. And part of what I want to underscore here is that their commitment was holistic, from, from the womb to the tomb. Now, the early church did stand uh, unequivocally against the practice of abortion. But what's interesting to note, let me, before I get into that too far, n- note this. The anci- in the ancient Roman Empire, scholars estimate that there were 140 men for every 100 women. Now, this is actually a remarkable disparity between the number of men and the number of women in the ancient world. Um, And scholars have looked back on that and said, the only explanation is that something is 
happening. The only explanation for this wide gender disparity is that something was happening to girls. And it was. The practice in the ancient Roman world of abortion was something that was prevalent. But more prominent than that was the practice of infanticide. That oftentimes a child would be born, and if that child um, wasn't wanted, the child would be taken and abandoned, thrown onto a a dump and left to die. And uh, this was common. It was not illegal. And it accounts for this massive disparity between the number of men and the number of women, the practice of infanticide. And the early church unequivocally stood against this practice, but more than just taking a stand against it, they did something about it. The early church actually went to the places where these children would be abandoned, most of them abandoned because they were born the wrong sex, right? Because they were girls. Sometimes they would be abandoned because they were born with a disability. And the church would go to those places and they would rescue those those children and raise them as their own. Sociologists actually point to the fact that there is a remarkable um, kind of uh, a disparity between the number of women in the ancient world and the number of women in the church, that the church grew with a rapid rate among women. And this is part of what they point to to account for that. Rodney Stark is a sociologist who has a book called The Rise of Christianity. And the subtitle of the book says how the obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in just a few centuries. How's that for a subtitle? Um, and he has a chapter in there. So interesting question. How did the, marginal, the obscure marginal Jesus movement become the dominant religious force in the Western world in just a few centuries? And he has a chapter in there. One of the, one of the ways he answers that question is women. And part of that was just because of the stark difference no pun intended. I said his name was Stark, so sorry about that. I really didn't intend that. Um, the stark difference between the way the world, I mean, the way that the church viewed and treated women in comparison to the rest of the ancient world. But part of it is also because the church went and rescued these little girls. And, uh, and so the church had a, a holistic commitment to the sanctity of human life. Um, now, I think... While, so when we come to talking about these kinds of contemporary issues, um, we ask, where does the church land on these things? Well, I can tell you my commitment as a pastor and us as a church is that we want to affirm the sanctity of every human life, every human life created in the image of God and worthy to be treated as such. But I think it's important for us when we think about how we respond to some of the dynamics that we find in our world today is just to be reminded of this, uh, this little adage It's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And sometimes it seems to me that the disposition of the church in dealing with some of these kinds of issues is to just curse the darkness. And yet the example that we see when we look back at the early church is a people committed to bringing light into the darkness, a people committed to to, to living differently, to living out that holistic commitment to the sanctity of life. Now, I meant to say at the beginning, I went to acknowledge the fact that when we start talking about these kinds of issues of sexuality, when we talk about issues of life, and as we get into talking about issues of race and ethnicity, these are all discussions that are just sort of emotionally fraught, right? That we can easily find ourselves feeling charged 
when we start talking about these kinds of issues. And the invitation tonight is, as we process these, to try to, um, to take a deep breath, um, to try to really listen well, to try to really think different, deeply, um, to try not to, um, not to think uncritically, but to try as best we can to think dispassionately, to not allow the, the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction that sometimes comes when we talk about some of these things, and to really try to think about them biblically, theologically, and historically. I also meant to acknowledge uh, right up front that, that as we talk about all of these issues, um, immediately our minds, because of the way in which we're shaped by this kind of partisan polarity, immediately our minds start going towards public policy. And I want to just acknowledge the fact that well-meaning Christians, informed by this kind of biblical, theological, and historical uh, way of thinking, well-meaning Christians, Bible-believing Christians, can disagree about public policy. We ought to be able to disagree charitably about public policy. But part of what I'm trying to get at is not public policy. Part of what I'm trying to get at is us thinking biblically, theologically, and historically about some of these complex, complex kinds of issues. So hope that helps. Meant to say that at the top. Um, better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. So um, the first one uh, has to do with that idea of uh, a countercultural sexual ethic. The second one, uh, a holistic commitment to the sanctity of human life. Now, it is precisely because of their holistic commitment to the sanctity of human life that we actually see these next two play out. And so the third one is a community of ethnic reconciliation. That one of the things that the ancient world found so remarkable, they didn't know what to do with it, was the fact that the early church was comprised of all these different people from all these different ethnic backgrounds. And somehow they came together in unity around Jesus. The, the ancient world was very segregated. And one of the most remarkable things, I hope you heard Sissy's message just a couple of weeks ago, one of the most remarkable things is particularly the birth of the church in the city of Antioch that we read about in Acts chapter 11. Antioch was a deeply segregated city where there were wall, literal walls dividing different, creating these different ethnic ghettos in the ancient world. And the church is born into this segregated city. And we actually see a picture in Acts 13 of the leadership team that is made up of people from Africa, uh, Asia, and um, uh, the Mediterranean, Europe. Um, together in this leadership team, leading this incredibly diverse, multi-ethnic church in a city where literally people are crawling over walls to be together because of their unity that they find in Jesus. And that their unity in Christ um, takes on a, a significance that helps them overcome the things that would keep them apart in the world. It doesn't mean that their ethnic background is, is no longer meaningful. Um, it just means that there's a, a commitment to one another, to unity in Christ, apart from those things that that tend to keep us apart in the world. Um, we've been talking a lot over the course of the last couple of years about becoming a more fully multi-ethnic church. Part of that is reflective of the city in which we find ourselves, but I believe part of it is because of the, the, the picture that we see on the pages of the Bible. And if you haven't seen it, I would just commend to you to go back and spend a few minutes. It's about a 25-minute presentation um, at irvingbible.org becoming. And what I do there in that little video at the top of that page is I spend about 25 minutes and walk all the way from Genesis to Revelation and talk about the, the multi-ethnic vision of God that we see played out on the pages of the Bible from the beginning to the end. And friends, I'll tell you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see it, you see it everywhere. 
because it's, it's the heart of God put on display in the pages of the Bible. And if you want to know what is most sacred in the world, just look at that which is most violently profaned. And isn't it true when we look at history and we look at our contemporary situation, what does the enemy love to do? Bring deep division and hostility between people of different ethnic backgrounds and races. Um, Again, my invitation as we process through some of this is for us to kind of take a deep breath, to try to set aside the polarity that we've been so shaped to think about these issues with, and to think biblically, theologically, and historically. So when I went with the journey class, one of the questions that they put to me was, how does critical race theory fit in the church's focus on multi-ethnic diversity? There's a pretty loaded question, huh? And a question that's certainly one that finds its way playing out on that partisan polarity of left and right. I want to just say very uh, clearly that I really have no interest in defending critical race theory. Um, It's not something that's been, uh, uh, that I've spent a lot of time uh, studying, learning about, not something that I feel a deep sense of attachment to. But what sometimes happens, I believe, with this idea is um, it's just immediately assumed that, that, it's, that it can't be Christian or others that w- want to sort of adopt critical race theory somewhat uncritically. And I think what we have to do as believers is actually be critical thinkers thinking biblically, theologically, and historically about contemporary issues and say, are there things here from this theory that have merit or that are, that are um, compatible with a Christian worldview? And are there things here in this theory that are incompatible and therefore must be rejected? And avoid thinking in this sort of, uh, again, polarity one way or the other. Um, But I think really what often happens with this issue of critical race theory is oftentimes people wind up using this phrase without really knowing much about what it means. I was in a conversation with somebody the other day who used the phrase and then offered what he thought was an explanation of it. And I thought, I don't know anybody who believes that. Um, Oftentimes it gets used... Um, without really knowing much about this um, uh, deep academic theory that comes primarily out of the field of law, um, but it winds up getting used as a scare word, as a boogeyman. And it winds up getting used oftentimes as a way to avoid having difficult, uncomfortable conversations about issues of race and ethnicity. And so I want to think with you about some topics that come up oftentimes under the banner of critical race theory, but I want to think with you about them, not, um, I, want to, I want to step back and think about them with you historically, before there ever was such a thing as critical race theory. What I want to think with you about is um, systemic racism and white privilege. Anybody feel some tension in the room just saying that out loud? Right? Let's all take a big, deep breath and think about this a little bit together. Historically, you go back not that long ago in American history to the era, era of slavery in America. And you ask, was there such a thing as systemic racism when there was slavery in America? Right? Was racism baked into the social system? And I think we have to look back historically and say, there's, there's no way to, I mean, it's, it's 
The answer is obvious. The answer is absolutely. There was racism baked into the social system. So those who want to reject the idea that there is such a thing as, as um, systemic racism, well, we can't say that historically. White privilege. Well, was there a disadvantage to being a person of color in America at that time in history? And once again, I think we have to say the answer is absolutely. And when it comes to thinking about this issue of white privilege, part of what we mean by that is simply the recognition that whatever disadvantages you might have had as a white person in your life, your skin color was never one of them. That there are disadvantages that have been experienced by people of color that as a white person you haven't had to experience. And once again, historically, there's no way to refute that that was a reality, right? Yes, but that's a couple of centuries ago, right? Okay, well, let's fast forward a little bit more recent in time. This is Ruby Bridges. This picture was taken as she is escorted by a group of U.S. Marshals into her, I believe, first grade class. Maybe it was kindergarten. This is November of 1960. Ruby Bridges is 67 years old. This is not ancient history. <laughs> it's not that long ago. Right? She's still alive and a, a grandmother today, um, a civil rights activist today. The Bridges family suffered for the decision to send her to William France Elementary School. Her father lost his job as a gas station attendant. The grocery store the family shopped at would no longer let them shop there. Her grandparents, who were sharecroppers in Mississippi, were turned off of their land. So... Was there racism that was kind of baked into the social system? Historically, we have to say the answer is absolutely. Were there disadvantages to being a person of color? The answer we have to say historically is absolutely. Then we have to say, okay, if systemic racism and white privilege is something that we recognize as with a sense of absolute certainty historically, the question we have to ask is, has it gone away? And I think part of what we have to wrestle with is that while we have made significant progress, and we ought not underestimate the significance of progress that we've made, the, the answer is it hasn't all gone away. And we could talk a lot about the, just the disparities that exist um, between races and ethnicities in America down to today. This isn't just a black-white thing, and yet that certainly is a big part of our history. Um, here's one disparity just to, just to sort of sit with for a minute. African-American women are three times more likely to die in pregnancy-related causes than white women. And the African-American infant mortality rate is twice the rate of white infants. And we just have to sit with the gravity of that. I mean, anybody who would claim to be pro-life would have to be concerned about that, right? Now, I think it's important to say that that disparity, we, we don't want to say it exists because all the OBGYNs out there are you know, card-carrying members of the Ku Klux Klan. That's not the suggestion. And yet there's something that's going on 
socially that is leading to perpetuating some of these disparities. And, and my suggestion is simply we've got to dig under and start asking questions about why. And what happens is when you start getting under and start asking uh, explanatory questions about the disparities that exist between racial groups in America today, you end up once again with a very wide spectrum of opinion. Um, most of the time, white people will answer the question, what, how do we explain these racial disparities with an emphasis on um, personal responsibility? And oftentimes people of color will emphasize systemic racism. And in the space between those, there are uh, overlapping kinds of explanations about lack of access to certain kinds of resources and such. Um, but I think part of why it's so important for us to think about becoming a more fully multi-ethnic church is to actually put us together in rooms like this, in small groups, and talk about these things and wrestle with these things, grieve about these things, and then say, how can we be a people who who light a candle and not just curse the dark? How can we have people who move together toward one another, live together in racial and ethnic reconciliation and show the world a different way? Next slide. <laughs> Told you we were going to kind of go there tonight, right? For those maybe listening along on the podcast, the slide on the screen says, hashtag Black Lives Matter. The question that got put to me um, when I went with the journey class a year or so ago said, do you believe the movement surrounding Black Lives Matter has a role at IBC? If so, what role does it have? If not, how do we respond to BLM? So I actually got a, a letter of concern from somebody that was concerned that actually some of their offering money might be being sent to the Black Lives Matter movement, the Black Lives Matter organization. Let me just make it explicitly clear, that's not the case. Um, there are aspects of Black Lives Matter organization that um, from a Christian standpoint, I think we have to stand in distinction from as far as the organization goes. But what about the, the sentiment? What about the hashtag? What about the idea underneath it? Well, here's part of what I think we have to understand because once again, I mean, this is a highly charged issue, right? that has a lot of that polarity that gets people really emotionally charged up about this stuff. Here's what I think we have to understand. Um, the question, it's, it's a bit like Jeopardy. Remember the old game show Jeopardy? I don't know if maybe that doesn't resonate with young adults. I'm not sure. The old game show Jeopardy, uh, the whole idea of the show is you're given the answer, and you have to come up with a question. Right? What's the question that this is the answer to? And I think we have to think about that when we wrestle with this issue of hashtag Black Lives Matter. What is the question that this is the answer to? And what I think a lot of people, white people in particular, that get really defensive about this is that they think the question is which lives matter, right? Whose lives matter? But I think what's happening, culturally speaking, is the question that's being asked is, do black lives matter despite all evidence to the contrary? Right? When, we, when we see some of the kinds of things that we see happening in our world, happening in our culture, do black lives matter despite all evidence to the contrary? And I believe for us as Christians, we have to say unequivocally, yes, black lives matter. 
Now, if the question is, whose lives matter, what lives matter, theologically speaking, the answer is, all lives matter. And, and if you've listened to me as a pastor for very long, you've heard me multiple times say every human being is made in the image of God. But what happens is if you offer that answer to the other question, it sounds like, shh, say it our way. It sounds like you're offering the wrong answer to a really important question. Do black lives matter despite all evidence to the contrary? Yes, unequivocally, black lives matter. All right, y'all ready for one more? Whew. My, my. A sacrificial concern for the poor and the marginalized. The early church is characterized by four uh, uh, crucial distinctives. Uh, a countercultural sexual ethic, a holistic commitment to the sanctity of life, a community of ethnic reconciliation, and finally, a sacrificial concern for the poor and the marginalized. Um, this played out in a whole variety of different ways. One of the things that was so interesting uh, about the growth of the early church, when we get back to that question, how did the early church grow so fast, become the dominant religious force? Uh, one of the things that the Christians did is they offered people an honorable burial. And we sort of hear that and think, well, that sounds odd. Like that's not like a big thing for us, an honorable burial. But in the first century world, in the, in the ancient world, the, the first centuries of the church, this was culturally a really big deal to have an honorable burial. It was such a big deal that they actually created burial societies, that you could join a burial society to ensure that when you died that you would get an honorable burial. And so all you had to do to join a burial society was you just had to make an ongoing contribution to the burial society. Who did that mean that an honorable burial was for? The rich, right? Those who had the money to make a contribution to join the burial society. And the early church said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to dedicate ourselves to provide an honorable burial for those who might not be able to afford it, whether they're members of our community or not. And this was actually part of the way that the early church grew. Um, a sacrificial concern for the poor and marginalized. There was a Roman emperor a few centuries into the history of the church as the church is really beginning to grow and kind of become that dominant force in the Western, uh, in the Roman Empire. There's an emperor that comes along named Julian, and he wants to turn the, the empire back to um, paganism. And so he's known as Julian the Apostate. And Julian the Apostate, we have this, uh, this ancient letter that he writes to one of his advisors, and, um, and he's complaining because of what he calls the pious Galileans. And he recognizes that he has a real PR problem on his hands as he's trying to revert the empire to paganism. And he's complaining about the pious Galileans. And he said, the problem is they take care not only of their own poor, but ours as well. Here's the Roman emperor saying the church is doing a better job of taking care of poor people than the empire is. And we can have all kinds of policy debates about things like access to, uh, to, to medical care, access to medical insurance. We can have all kinds of policy debates all day long, but the reality is there are people in our community who have lack of access to, to quality medical care, and so that's one of the reasons why we as a church are committed to having a medical clinic that provides a high level of medical care for people that don't have access to those kinds of resources. Because we, while we might disagree about public policy, we can serve together to try to not just curse the darkness, but to light a candle. Um, 
a sacrificial concern for the poor and the marginalized. Now, the question got um, put to me this way. A few years ago, we, IBC, sent people to the border to assist in welcoming immigrants to the U.S. Does the church intend to send people to welcome immigrants again? Um, We also find ourselves in a community that is filled with people who are newcomers to our country. How are we going to think about that? How are we going to navigate that? And people that are, that are highly concerned about these issues. Once again, I want to acknowledge that it's entirely possible for well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians to disagree about public policy. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear how we as God's people are to respond to the language of the Bible, foreigners living among us. Um, we sent people down to serve on the border a couple of years back at a time where there was just a significant crisis with people who had already crossed the border, people who had applied for asylum, and people who the government didn't quite know what to do with, and they were asking churches, can you help us? And we said, yes, we can. And we sent some people down to be able to help, to assist. Um, and, and there were people on that trip who disagreed about public policy, but said, but we can go serve people together. So once again, when it comes to this, we have to think biblically, theologically, and historically. And I just want to put just a sampling of verses from the Old Testament that address the stranger, the foreigner living among you. And what you can see just visually from that slide is it's all over the place, in the Old Testament especially, addressing the people of Israel, how they are to live with people who are from different places from different ethnic backgrounds all over the Old Testament. But let me just show you one in particular that I think gets it really, really well. It it says very much what it says in those other passages. But here's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 through 19. For the Lord our God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And here's the way that I think we, as God's people, ought to think about this. We love, sorry, let me say it differently. Who God loves, we love. What God does, we do. Right? Who God loves, we love. What God does, we do. There's plenty of room for well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians to disagree about public policy. But who God loves, we're called to love. What God does, we're called to do. Now, when you put all this together... You recognize we've covered a lot of ground in about 45 minutes. Um, We've covered some really weighty issues in our 21st century world. And I think we find a whole lot of help by looking back at the first century world. The church of those early centuries that brought transformation to the empire. Because they lived distinctive lives. And their imagination was not shaped the way that our imagination is shaped to think in terms of partisan polarity. But they held these things together, and they lived distinctively, and it brought transformation. We have a a set of writings from the second century um, 
that are referred to as the second century apologists. These are those who are not going around apologizing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. These are people who are offering a, a defense of the Christian faith. And, and if you know anything about apologetics today, oftentimes apologetics today is all about rational argumentation. It's about how we sort of try to arm wrestle people intellectually into believing the things of God. But what you find, interestingly enough, while there was sort of rational explanation within the second century apologists, what you find more prominently is the way they pointed to the distinctive form of life within the Christian community. One of those is in what's referred to as the letter to Diognetus. And this is just a little snippet of a larger expression of the same sentiment. Writing about the early church, there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play the full role as citizens, but they labor under the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they're citizens of heaven. Right? There's something extraordinary about their lives. The same sentiment is captured in another second century writer, uh, Manicus Felix, who says, Beauty of life causes strangers to join their ranks. We do not preach great things. We live them. And that's my heart. That's my passion. Um, that's my agenda for Irving Bible Church, is that we would live distinctive lives, that we wouldn't be so much caught up in preaching great things, but living them. That we would be those who live out the same kind of commitments that we see on display in the early church. A countercultural sexual ethic. Not so hung up on trying to persuade the world that ours is the truth, but trying to live faithfully by it. A holistic commitment to the sanctity of life. A community of ethnic and racial reconciliation, showing the world a better way. And a sacrificial concern for the poor and the marginalized. Can I pray for us to that end? Would you join me in prayer? I invite you just right now to just take a big, deep cleansing breath. Father, we've talked tonight about some weighty matters, some matters that, uh, that are prone to cause division even within the life of a church like ours. But we recognize, Lord, that we are oftentimes shaped by this kind of polarity in our thinking, but that, that we can look back at the church historically and that they can help us to see and embody a better way. And God, I pray that you would move among us as your people in these days at Irving Bible Church, that we would truly be those who see and embody a better way. That, that, that the people would look upon us and say, there's something extraordinary about their lives. That, that they would look at us and the way we live uh, faithfully um, in our marriages and, and in our singleness. Um, they would look at us and they would see the way in which we are, are, are lighting candles in the midst of this dark world, bringing hope and healing and transformation. 
God, that they would see the way in which we embody unity amidst our diversity from all kinds of different backgrounds, races, and ethnicities, and yet we are drawn together in Christ. That they would see in us a, a sacrificial concern for those who are on the margins, those who are in need. And God, I pray that, uh, that you would help each one of us who are here in this room tonight, God, not only to hold these things as convictions, and not only spout them off on social media and our various places of influence in ways that amount to little more than virtue signaling, but God, truly, that we would be those who live differently, that, that there would be indeed something extraordinary about our lives. We need your spirit to move in our midst in order to accomplish this. We need your spirit to move in our midst in order to listen well to one another around these issues to think carefully and critically, not reactively, so that we may find unity in the midst of, of the, the diversity in which we find here. So have your way in our midst, we pray, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You ready for Q&A? I, I don't know if I'm ready for <laughs> Q&A. I know. Well, let's give it a try. We've got quite a few questions that were submitted. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions. I think we have time for maybe three of them. Um, so, Chad, you want to put up the first one? There it is. Should the church take a public slash prophetic stand on LGBTQ issues, or is it damaging to our witness to do so? Yeah, so um, I think my posture on that. Uh, was the, uh, implied underneath my statement that the, the way the early church lived was not so much um, by, uh, by trying to convince the world that their way was right, but by living faithfully uh, in their way. Now, we do see um, uh, significant kinds of issues in terms of public policy that, that cause great concern. Um, and so we should engage fully in the political task. We're going to talk more about that next week. Uh, my friend Caitlin Chess is going to be here with us, and we're going to be talking about the way we think about and engage in, um, in political kinds of issues. We're going to be using the book of Revelation as kind of a jumping-off point to talk about some of that discussion. So we need to be fully engaged. Please don't hear a sort of um, a posture of withdrawal from our participation in the po political systems of the world. We should allow our our theological convictions to guide the way that we think about policy, and we will have differences of opinion sometimes within the church about particular policy issues. So we must be engaged. We must be engaged um, in ways that are for the sake of the world, but I think that our posture needs to be one that is marked by a profound sense of compassion. Um, so I hope that, yeah, brings some sense of the way that I at least see these kinds of issues, is that we have to be engaged. We need to be engaged in a way that our um, theology informs right. our response to policy. But in terms of our response to people, we lead with compassion. Yeah, yeah thank you. No, I think that's great. Um, our next question says, when thinking of accepting strangers and aliens, how do we balance safety slash potential bad influences and acknowledging the Imago Dei in them and loving them. It's really good. Um, so again, this is where I think um, I don't want to sit up here and pretend to be a public policy expert. I'm not. Um, I try to have a level of expertise in the Bible and theology and history. Um, and, uh, and so that's what I've tried to bring to you as a means to try to think through some of these issues. And so 
again, well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians may have disagreements about how we do strike to try to strike that balance. I think it's important for us to point out that sometimes there can be a kind of uh, posture of, of uh, protectivism that is, um, these people are a threat to our way of life. And I think we have to be really careful about that. Um, so uh, um, I, was, I, I, did some, I did some digging uh, I don't know if you saw this. I, I don't know if I even really want to talk about it publicly, but I guess I've already started. And I've talked about plenty of controversial things already tonight. Um, there was a little bit of dust up on our uh, social media, on our Facebook page, back on Columbus Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day. And, uh, and we made a post, and it got some people been out of shape. And so I needed to kind of get in there and, and offer a response. So what that caused me to do is start looking at the history even of, of Columbus Day. And what's interesting to see is you go back historically, and... Columbus Day was primarily advocated and celebrated among um, Italian immigrant communities and Irish immigrant communities um, because Columbus was Italian and he was Roman Catholic. And so those communities were advocating for the, the, the uh, celebration of this particular day, and many others within the broader culture were saying, no, 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 we don't need to acknowledge that, we don't need to celebrate that, because they were worried that these Catholics are a threat to, quote, our way of life. And isn't it interesting the way that's played out? Of, and so sometimes I think we can have a, a posture of protectivism that is actually not all that healthy that is this idea of these people are a threat to our way of life. Now, that's going to sound like I'm advocating a particular kind of public policy. I'm not. I'm just saying we have to, I think, examine ourselves, try to get down underneath the, the way that we um, think about these kinds of issues. So um, there is a need to think about how we find balance, and there will be. Some of you, may that may sound overly wishy-washy. I don't intend for it to be. I just mean for it to create room within a diverse community for us to have disagreements and to be able to talk about those. But to think theologically and make sure that our theological, biblical, historical convictions are, in fact, informing rather than the way we're often shaped by these kind of partisan polarities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Um, <clears throat> one more. What resources would you recommend for further study on each of these topics, remembering that we don't have <laughs> PhDs. Yeah. Um, that's a dangerous question to ask me because I can very much get into, uh, I love making book recommendations. Um, so one book that I think is fascinating, I mentioned earlier, is a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Um, it is, I mean, he is, he is writing as a sociologist, but it's a very engaging read. I mean, it's, it's um, not just mere sort of dry academic history. It's fascinating. And so he talks a lot about some of these kinds of issues that were so distinctive. Um, he talks about the, the church providing a place of stability in a very socially unstable world. And that was like literal, like cities that where buildings are built on top of buildings and they're crumble. And there's just this highly unstable kind of um, environment. And that Christians provided a place of stability, a place of home, a place of belonging. I mentioned about women... He has a chapter in there on the Christian response to the plagues that swept through the Roman Empire and the way in which the Christian responded to plagues that caused so many people to sort of flock to Christianity. So it's a great book on sort of the distinctives of uh, the early Christians. Um, There's another book that is, again, it's covering some important history, but it's not a dry academic book. It's a really beautiful, engaging read. It's called Water from a Deep Well. 
um, by a guy named Gerald Sitzer. And, um, and it's kind of the history of Christian spirituality. And so he talks a lot in the section, particularly dealing with the early church. He's going to cover a whole lot more history than we've been talking about, but especially his chapters on the life of the early church are just really, I think, powerful, helpful, and important in this regard. Time we have our questions, but I actually want to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, it's it's hopefully an easy one, <laughs> but um, you've talked about a lot of different, really challenging topics tonight. Yeah. As we walk out this room, what is the one thing that you want us to take away? If we yeah. remembered one thing from tonight, what what would that be? Yeah, that's a great question. Because um, I think I'm prone to want to go multiple different ways, um, but maybe it's. Can I do two? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So one is it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness, right? That part of the way that which we respond to these issues isn't just to, again, to, to just spout off on social media. Virtue signaling is we're all um, capable of it, but to actually not just. Now, let me, let me offer this little caveat. Sometimes the darkness needs some denouncing, right? So don't get me wrong in that regard, right? Sometimes the darkness needs some denouncing, but... As God's people, we want to be people who are committed to bringing light into the darkness. So it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And second, um, we need to be able to talk about these things together. I, I don't feel super comfortable standing on a stage talking about these things, but we need to. We need to be able to talk about them in a way where we can kind of take a deep breath and talk and process and think well together in ways that don't lead to this kind of... Um, the kind of hostility. And so here's, here's part of what I think we have to recognize is we've been, again, so shaped by this polarity and so fed anger and fear. Oftentimes, I absolutely believe fed anger and fear motivated by finances. It's what sells um, ad space and gets um, mouse clicks. Um, and we've got to be able to engage in conversations without vilifying those with whom we disagree. Right? Because what, what we're shaped to do is those with whom we disagree, we see not only, so I say you're not only wrong, but you're bad. And we vilify those with whom we disagree. And we need to be able to talk about these things together. And maybe we can learn from each other. Again, there's a spectrum of the ways people understand and respond to these issues. What if we're together in a small group? And that makes small groups hard, right? It's easier, it's, let me tell it's easier to pastor a church, I can assure you, where everybody agrees. <laughs> and it's easier to be in a small group in a church where everybody agrees. But just because it's easier doesn't mean it's better. Maybe doing what's harder is actually beautiful. And then we actually can learn from one another. Thank you so much, Barry. Yeah. I really appreciate you going through church and culture tonight. I know that it was not easy for you, and for a lot of us, it's really challenging topics, but I agree with you. I think it's what we needed to hear, and we need to be able to talk about these things in a way that's loving. So thank you so Absolutely. much. Thanks. Thank you, <clears throat> and guys. Barry will be back next week. That's right. Closing us down.